This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stamps.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. A lot of people talk to their pets, but Nicole Cordova says her dog, Manson, actually talks back. Manson, it's too early for this. I'm not, I'm not. She says Manson sounds a little bit like Chewbacca from Star Wars. He's very, very talkative. He yells at me constantly. We're always arguing. And when you say yells at you, what does that sound like? <laughs> do, you, do you want me to sure, make the sound? <laughs> All right. So when he's yelling, he's kind of like, Woo! like really loud, like throughout the whole house. My neighbors can hear him. You don't have to yell. Manson is a Siberian husky. He has a beautiful gray coat, piercing blue eyes. Nicole says he started communicating more and more when he was just a little puppy. And when does he do it? Is it in response to you or is it to get your attention? Is it when he is by himself? It's to get my attention. It's in response to me. It's if he wants anything at all. If he just wants some attention, like to be loved, if he wants to go out, if he wants some food or a drink or a treat. A lot of dogs bark to get attention when they are excited or to scare off an intruder. But huskies seem especially adept at producing a wide range of pitches and tones. One idea is that it's because they were bred as sled dogs, where they work in teams and need to communicate more. And husky owners often hear their dogs trying to mimic human words and phrases. Nicole says she's witnessed that a lot with Manson. And you feel like he is, quote, definitely talking to you. I mean, it's, it's definitely an attempt at communication. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like that stems from me talking to him a lot. I'm a stay-at-home mom, so <laughs> it's just me and kids. And sometimes I go stir-crazy. And, you know, I just started talking to him all the time when he was little. And now, honestly, when he's, you know, talking to me, he actually tries to make the sounds of things. Like, I can tell if he's saying, let's go. I can tell if he's saying, I love you. I love you, too, but... I love you, too. Nicole posts videos on Instagram and TikTok where Manson has a big following. She hears from a lot of other husky owners who say their dogs are also talking to them. So it's it's cool to speak to one another because, you know... I'm sure there are people out there that are not, you know, they don't really know much about Huskies and they think you're crazy for thinking your dog talks. But, you know, when you have one, you know that dog is talking to you and they understand what you're saying and, you know, trying to communicate back to you what they want. And it's just, it's really cool. 
From dogs to cats, parrots, and even wild animals, humans have long been fascinated by the idea of communicating with other species. Not just having animals mimic human words, but understanding their specific calls or cries and interpreting their meaning. And new technologies and research is getting us closer to that point. On today's episode, communicating with animals and understanding their language. To get started, let's stick with the idea of having conversations with our pets. So maybe you have a dog or cat that sounds like they're talking to you, but some people want to push beyond that. A couple of years ago, Christina Hunger had an idea. She's a speech-language pathologist, and she works with a lot of children who are nonverbal and use devices to talk. This is known as augmentative and alternative communication, and it can include everything from iPads to speech-generating devices, like buttons you can press that say words for you. You can record all kinds of different words. Then Christina got a puppy, Stella, and she started using those recordable buttons to train the puppy with words like outside, play, or water. And she documented her efforts on social media. Here's some sound from the first video she put on Instagram, which shows a very insistent Stella stepping on her buttons. Then Stella scratches at the door. Okay, I hear you. Let's go. The videos quickly went viral, inspiring hundreds and thousands of other pet owners to buy their own buttons in hopes of teaching their pets to talk. The resulting videos are entertaining and, of course, cute, but they also raise questions. Are these dogs and cats actually communicating, or are they just pressing their owners' buttons? Liz Tung reports. Of the millions of cats on YouTube, cats who step on their owners' sleeping faces, cats who knock over toddlers, cats who push their cat siblings down the steps, one of them stands out as especially sassy. Hello, Billy. This is Billy. She's a 14-year-old light gray tortie with wide green eyes and an adorable round face. And she's become famous not only for being one of the world's first talking cats, but for what she chose as her favorite word. That's from a compilation video made by Billy's owner, Kendra Baker, entitled A Year of Mad. Here's Kendra. Billy is truly a sweetheart overall. Like, she is very cuddly. She wants to be around humans. She is a cat, though, and we all know cats have a little bit of a personality. Kendra and Billy have always been close, and Billy's always been a troublemaker. Take, for example, the story of how Kendra ended up adopting Billy when she was a kitten. She was um, running across the street, caused a car accident. Thankfully, she was okay. (laughs) But I jumped out and I grabbed her and I tried so hard to find her, her home and no one claimed her. So she became mine. Kendra's a vet and she's always been into enrichment. She taught Billy to do what are usually considered dog tricks, shaking paws, doing spins. But she never imagined that Billy would be capable of talking until she saw some of Christina Hunger's videos. So when COVID hit and Kendra found herself at home all day with Billy, she decided to give it a shot. 
for the first button, she chose what she thought would be the most motivating word for Billy. So I started with food because Billy loves food more than anything in the entire world, more than me. This, by the way, is not recommended, since some animals will just become fixated on the buttons as a food reward system instead of a way of communicating. It took about three and a half weeks of modeling the food button before Billy pressed it for the first time. Once she realized pressing the button got her munchies, Billy was hooked. So did she gain weight? Yes, she uh, she absolutely did. Um, and then it was a very hard reality turn where, um, oh, wait a second, mom's not giving me food every time I press this button anymore? What? After Billy got the hang of it, Kendra added a second button, pets, as in pet me. And then Kendra made an unusual choice for Billy's third button, the word that would become Billy's trademark, mad. She picked up on that button faster than I think any of the other buttons that we've ever added. You know, I joke about this, but it was like she had always had this word in her mind and I finally gave her an outlet for it and she was like, let's go. And she just, she really wanted to tell me when I was not up to par. With the other buttons, Kendra would usually have to model them over and over in context for Billy to understand what they meant. With Mad, though, all it took was three examples. I modeled it once when I told her that she couldn't have food, and then twice when I moved her off my lap, I modeled Mad. And then the third time that I moved her off my lap, she marched straight over to that Mad button and slammed it. And there was a cat glare that accompanied it, and I really felt the anger, so I <laughs> You know, like, there's, there's something there. Here's a pretty typical example of Billy expressing her displeasure. The video starts with Billy next to her buttons, with Kendra and her boyfriend in the background. Food. Billy, you can't have any more food, okay? A minute goes by, and then Billy circles back. Food. Food. <sighs> no. No, Billy. She takes laps around the couch, swishing her tail. Then she turns around and faces them. And while making direct eye contact... Mad. <laughs> Mad. I know. Billy, what do you want besides food? Mad. Today, Billy has more than 60 buttons, and she's actually started combining them into rudimentary sentences. Things like, want play, want food, even questions. Like this one video where Kendra keeps Billy waiting, and once she arrives, Billy asks before, where. What I was most interested in were the abstract words, like soon or later, happy, and I love you. Obviously, there's nothing cuter than a cat or dog saying they love you. But I also couldn't help but wonder. So I assume whenever she or you presses the I love you button, you give her some pets or scritches. So how do you know she actually understands what it means versus just using it as another pet me button? Yeah, I don't know. Um, that one's really difficult because it is, again, like a really nebulous concept. Having said that, Kendra added the I love you button a lot later than the pets button. And she says Billy doesn't use them interchangeably. Pets is much more popular. But it, it is an abstract concept. So how much does she understand? Who knows? Like, does she just think that when she presses this button, I immediately give her affection? Potentially. This is kind of the big question when it comes to the whole button communication craze. 
How do we actually know that Billy or Stella or any of the other cats and dogs we see on Instagram actually really understand the words they're using versus just pressing buttons as a way of getting some kind of response, whether it's food or attention or pets or just for the pleasure of producing a sound they might like? As it happens, Billy is part of a research project that's trying to answer exactly that question. The big question is, are non-human animals using these sound buttons in what I consider kind of interesting ways? This is Leo Trottier, the guy who's spearheading the research project, which he's named They Can Talk. And by interesting ways, he means using the buttons in ways that go beyond the equivalent of lab mice pressing a button to get food. And he says they've actually started to see some of that interesting usage. We have seen things that I would have never expected to have seen. Leo studied cognitive science, but he actually got involved with a project as an entrepreneur. Years ago, while getting his Ph.D., he got interested in this idea that a lot of the cognitive abilities humans have, animals have too. He ended up starting a company based on that idea designing video games for cats and dogs to keep them stimulated while their owners were at work. The project fizzled out. But when Christina Hunger's videos started coming out, Leo's interest in working with animals and exploring their cognitive abilities was renewed. Leo realized he could bring a scientific approach to what Christina Hunger was doing. So he started Fluent Pet, a company that designs recordable buttons specifically for cats and dogs to communicate with. Pretty quickly, he found that he had plenty of potential beta testers. Within a year of Christina Hunger's first video, Facebook groups with hundreds and then thousands of people had formed, all dedicated to training their dogs to communicate using buttons. I reached out to a number of them and I said, hey, I have some experience making devices for dogs and cats, and I have a background in cognitive science. Would you like to improve on these DIY boards that you're putting together with Velcro and plywood? So Leo started designing and testing prototypes. He made a few improvements, making the buttons smaller so they were easier for small dogs or the odd cat to press, organizing the buttons in hexagonal regions instead of long lines to make it easier for animals to remember where each button lived, grouping the buttons by word type, subjects, objects, actions, and social words. It was all going well. And then came the doggy star who blew things up for Leo, Bunny a sheep doodle who just so happened to have the gift of gab. Meow. Love you. <laughs> Love you, too. Bunny just had that special something. She got written up in the New York Times, Salon, BuzzFeed, the BBC, and within weeks had racked up millions of followers on TikTok. So Leo reached out, and Bunny's owner, Alexis Devine, agreed to help advertise Fluent Pets buttons. But Leo, who dropped out of his Ph.D. program but is still a scientist at heart, wasn't satisfied with just selling buttons. Thanks in part to Bunny, Fluent Pet had built up an online community of thousands of people, all sharing tips and tricks on the website's forum of how to train their pets to talk. That's when Leo realized that he had the makings of a ready-made research project on his hands. Having all of these people who are very enthusiastic about this question and willing to participate, it felt like it would be some kind of misconduct on my part to not see if it was possible to kind of bring all these people together to to figure out what was going on. Leo needed a scientist, unconnected to Fluent Pet, to help design and run the research project. So he reached out to Federico Rosano. 
a professor of cognitive science at the University of California, San Diego, to see if he was interested. And he asked me, what do you think of dogs being trained to use buttons? And my immediate response was skepticism because I was familiar with the history of the animal language studies. One reason Federico was skeptical was because of what's called the Clever Hans effect. Clever Hans was this horse that was supposedly capable of uh, doing mathematical operations like additions and subtractions. The handler would ask Hans, what's two plus three? And Hans would give the answer by stomping his hoof five times. And for a long time, people thought this animal was a genius and had become a star. Until a psychologist came along and showed that Hans wasn't actually doing math. He was reacting to physical cues by his handler and the audience, which would relax and smile every time he got close to the right answer. Ever since then, Clever Hans has become shorthand for researchers unintentionally cueing desired behaviors in animal subjects. But even more daunting than Clever Hans was scientists' troubled history with animal language research. There's a long history of this. They started in the 1930s at least. And uh, the idea was to see whether other animals could learn language. They started off by trying to actually teach bonobos and orangutans to talk, like with their mouths. When that didn't work, they turned to sign language. And they found some success. Specifically, it was superstar primates like Coco the gorilla, who eventually built up a vocabulary of more than a thousand signs. Love you, she said. Love you, visit love. Oh. Well, that was very nice. Thank you, Coco. She loves At first, the project was thought of as a success. But then, in the late 70s, the tide turned. Critics started questioning the results and suggesting that what we had thought was real language was, in fact, just wishful thinking. They were not doing anything uh, creative or original. They were not really combining science into meaningful sentences. It wasn't language, they said. It was nothing more than a trick taught through endless repetition. Worse, a lot of the animals ended up disoriented and suffering once they were put back with other members of their species. Many of these animals were highly traumatized and they they show problematic behaviors and many of them did not live a very happy life. And so this dream of teaching animals to talk died on the vine. From there, the field branched out in different directions. Some researchers decided to look at how animals communicated with other members of their own species. Others stayed focused on human communication but looked only at comprehension, which is how we discovered that some dogs are capable of learning upwards of a thousand words. A few others did work using symbols to communicate. But again, the limitation was that usually this would be one animal, maybe two animals, that spend their entire life being trained for hours and hours and hours. And some of the findings were mostly anecdotal. So this was the backdrop swirling around in Federico's head when he first got Leo's email. His knee-jerk reaction was no. Science has already been over this. It's all just wishful thinking. There's nothing more to investigate. But then Federico started watching some of the videos Leo had sent, specifically of Bunny, the chatty sheepadoodle. And he couldn't deny that what Bunny and Christina Hunger's dog Stella were doing amounted to more than just a party trick. I was fascinated because now I thought now there's two dogs, at least, that seem to be doing remarkable things. Of course, as a scientist, Federico was aware that these videos could be cherry-picked. Alone, they didn't prove anything. 
What they did show was that it was possible for ordinary people to teach their dogs how to use these buttons in a fairly short period of time. And that regular dogs could build up vocabularies of dozens of words. What I was impressed by was the idea that they were not just using one or two buttons. They had several, right? They had maybe like 20 buttons or something. And so the idea was, hey, what can happen if instead of getting just two two dogs, you get 200 dogs, 2,000 dogs, 20,000 dogs to have 40, 50 buttons? Federico knew from research about human language acquisition that this threshold, 50 words, was significant. It's when young children start producing simple two- to three-word sentences. And so the question was, is it possible that once they get to have a minimum number of buttons to use, are they going to start combining them into sentences just like young children do by the time they are two? And... Of course, the dream was, hey, are they going to start combining more than two buttons? Maybe we're going to make three buttons combination or four buttons combination. This was the big question that Leo's study just might be able to answer. Are dogs and cats capable of not just memorizing words, not just using the buttons like a lever to get food or a pat on the head, but are they capable of actually combining words to create sentences, to ask questions or communicate thoughts? to use language in a way that we've traditionally thought of as uniquely human. These are questions that up until now, scientists seemed unlikely to answer. Sure, we've seen a few superstar talking animals like Coco or Alex the African Grey Parrot, but getting to that point required thousands of hours of intensive one-on-one work, a process that seemed neither ethical nor scalable. But now, thanks to videos of dogs like Bunny, it was clear to Federico that that work didn't need to be done in a lab by specially trained researchers. It could be done in people's homes. And it just so happened, thanks to COVID, there were thousands of people ready and able to do that work. Federico says that's what convinced him to take part in the study, the potential it held as a citizen science project. And he says the goal of the project goes beyond figuring out if animals can use language. Obviously, they can learn it. They can learn to associate buttons to meaning. That's no news. What, a, what I think of this study is it's a production study. It's the idea that you can now see what would they talk about if they were provided a vocabulary. The first two phases of the study focus on how animals learn and use the buttons. Phase three will use behavioral experiments to test whether or not they actually understand the meaning of these words. They haven't yet released any findings. Federico says their first paper should be coming out soon. So instead, I asked Federico what he's seen, anecdotally, that stood out to him. He said one thing he's been impressed by is seeing animals communicating on behalf of other pets in the house. Let's say there's another dog in the house or another cat and is stuck behind the door or doesn't have water or doesn't have food. You would find that the one that can use the soundboard would go and press certain buttons to tell the human, help them. Another interesting behavior they've seen is animals asking for people or other pets who aren't around, either because they've left the house or, in sadder cases, passed away. It shows you that they have the ability to communicate about something that is not physically present, somebody that is not physically present, and they think about it. A third thing Federico's found fascinating is animals communicating about their own pain, fear, or discomfort. 
A particularly incredible one is this video of Bunny, the sheepadoodle. She starts off pressing the button for mad. And when her owner, Alexis Devine, asks why she's mad, Bunny presses the button for ouch. Where ouch? Stranger. Where stranger? In your paw? And then Bunny walks over and offers her paw to Alexis, who a minute later discovers a foxtail, a kind of spiky grass lodged between Bunny's toes. This is the stranger in her paw. She's got a mat between her ow toes. And the fourth most interesting behavior Federico's observed, and for my money, the most fun, is what he calls productivity, combining words to create new meanings. Take, for example, this dog, which was captivated by an ambulance driving by. So you see them looking outside the window and coming back and looking outside the window and coming back and then just pushing the button, squeaky car. And then they look at the human, kind of like, what, what is going on? Federico and Leo also told me about a few others. One dog, they say, started referring to ice cream trucks as refrigerator cars. Another, who happens to be a fan of chewing on ice, started asking for it by pressing the buttons water and bone. And Bunny, according to owner Alexis, once referred to a plane as a big upstairs bird. As for Billy the cat, Kendra says she calls her morning coffee catnip water. So that's all pretty interesting. But what about the goal Federico mentioned? Finding out if once animals had vocabularies of 50 words and up, if they were able to start forming basic sentences. He says that's something they've already started seeing from their more advanced learners, like Bunny. One of my favorite was Bunny saying, cat, dog, want. And then repeating it, cat, I, want. And so you're like, okay, so now you have an object, the cat, there's up high, and then you're using a noun, a subject, dog, yourself, want, the verb. So you now have what sounds like a sentence. Uh, Is it a complete fluke or is it actually something that you can do reliably? Kendra says Billy the cat is somewhat less talkative. She tends to deploy sentences at strategic times. Like when she's trying to prevent Kendra from leaving for work. We, uh, you know, she'd done a couple of them. We had cuddled, we had played fan toy, and then I I really had to go. I was going to be late. And she asked me, work where? Then I had to explain to her what I do for a living using her buttons. And and then she pressed mad. (laughs) Um, So I don't, I either didn't do a very good job or she was not a fan of my answer. Of course, Billy and the other animals do make mistakes. There's plenty of videos of them stringing together what seem to be random words that puzzle their owners. But Kendra says at this point, she's fairly confident that Billy's use of the buttons isn't just a fluke or some Pavlovian behavior designed to get what she wants. You're never going to be able to say definitively 100%. Does she probably know what some of the concrete words are? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think we can say that with a fair amount of certainty at this point. Um, Some of the more nebulous words, all I can really say is that she uses them in contacts, I would say over 80% of the time. So is that remaining 20% because Billy doesn't understand? Is it the kind of normal mistakes anyone would make when they're learning a foreign language? Or is it, as Kendra suggests, because cats are cats? Sometimes she'll press catnip and I'll give her some catnip and she doesn't want it. 
So is that because she's being a cat? You know, how many people have opened a door for a cat that was meowing and then they turned around and they walked away from you? Does that mean that they didn't want the door opened or were they just, you know, being a cat at that point? It's hard to say definitively, which is why I find kind of the study of language in general so fascinating. That story was reported by Liz Tung. Coming up... It's one thing to try to teach animals to speak our language, but what if we could learn how to understand theirs? We assume that those communication systems must function just like human language, like every whistle that we see is a word that refers to like seaweed or, you know, the current or something. That's next on The Pulse. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. From your car radio to your smart speaker. NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch, and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about communicating with animals. So far, we've heard about people who are trying to teach animals human language. But there is a lot of research on understanding the sounds that animals make, their calls or cries. In 1970, an album of haunting but beautiful songs was released. It was published by a biologist named Roger Payne, and the album was called Songs of the Humpback Whale. Roger had been invited to listen to some strange recordings captured by a hydrophone station, underwater microphones off the coast of Bermuda. Beautiful, complicated, long calls. And Roger was spellbound. They were so beautiful. Roger suspected they were made by whales. And he started realizing they were repeating patterns within them. He did more work and managed to link them to humpback whales to prove that they were whales making these sounds. And he decided that the world had to hear this, which is why he produced and released Songs of the Humpback Whale. It quickly became a big hit. It was on all the TV shows, musicians, people played it in churches, people got together to have whale song listening parties. 
I talked about this album and what it meant for researchers with nature filmmaker Tom Mustel. His latest book is called How to Speak Whale. Tom says the recording set off a quest to learn more about how these giant mammals communicate and why. And did people venture a guess what was the purpose of their song? Absolutely. There were loads of theories. And ultimately, we still don't really know. The main theory is that it's like other displays of males in the natural world, that it's a sexual selection. It's a way of showing off and trying to get the females to mate with you. But Tom thinks there's more to whale song than mating. They have enormously sensitive ears. They have an incredible range of sounds and they have really big brains. And so that's the hardware that you need. If you want to have a conversation, it needs to be useful for your life. And it is really useful if you need to coordinate living in a dangerous, dark environment where you need to team up with other organisms. You need to have a brain that can compute sound and conceive of the idea of others and how your communications might impact them and to take their information on board. And you need to be able to hear it and you need to be able to make it yourself. And they have top marks in every class of this. So these are really, really encouraging signs that the sounds we're hearing from these species might be sophisticated communication. So we still don't quite know why whales sing, why these repeated patterns, what they are communicating. But we have so many new tools in terms of capturing this communication. So mm-hmm. what did you discover in that realm? This is particularly exciting because in the sea, we're very limited because most of the time you're stood on a boat waiting for them to come up to breathe. Imagine if all you knew about lions you learned every time they breathed, but otherwise suddenly just some, the screen went blank. <laughs> you know, so we've had these flashes of really basic information is unknown. I mean, some species have never even been seen. We've just heard them, but now we have machines that can perceive, they can hear frequencies of sound that we can't. And whales make use of low frequencies that are below our hearing and higher frequencies above them. So we can hear their full range of communications. We can leave recording devices on the seabed permanently. We can leave them floating. We can fly drones above whales that can look down through the water column and see their interactions as groups really clearly. You can't see looking down close to the surface on a boat. We can put cameras on their bodies and see their lives from their perspectives. And you have robots that can sail their way across entire oceans, recording the lives of whales and dolphins as they go. So Really, we have a sort of superhuman period now of being able to spy on whales. And what are we learning? What are we now hearing and seeing that we could never hear and see before? I guess in general terms, we're learning that they're very complicated, that many of the species are highly social and that they live long. I mean, some of, some whales can live for over 150 years, mm. that they survive by coordinating their behavior, teaching each other how to live and navigate and survive in the sea, defend themselves against predators together. They care for their old and their sick, and they take care of each other's young, some species in creches. When I'm making these generalizations and I say they, these are normally examples found from one species, so it doesn't mean that they all do them. We just don't really know what most whales do. We find that some of them have friends 
as in they make associations with other unrelated whales and they travel for hundreds and hundreds of miles with them. They seem to hunt in teams with different roles, communicating with each other while they do that, like humpback whales um, making nets of bubbles. They have clans, like groups of whales, and they have what we call cultures. They have ways of living that they learn and teach one another that are vital for their survival that differ massively between different social groups. So what we're really discovering is a sort of golden age of complexity and social life and evolution in the sea. That's nature filmmaker Tom Mustel. His latest book is called How to Speak Whale. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about animal communication. Justin Gregg is a researcher at the Dolphin Communication Project in Port St. Lucie, Florida. They record the clicks and whistles of dolphins with underwater equipment. Justin has swum with dolphins in Japan, in the Bahamas, and Honduras, both in the ocean and in tank settings. It sounds very glamorous, I have to say, to go swimming with dolphins and recording them, but probably 90% of the time you're just staring at a screen looking at an audio waveform and trying to figure out what's going on. So less glamorous, but completely necessary. You've probably heard the high-pitched sounds of dolphin whistles. But Justin says he finds their clicking sounds more fascinating. So they make a bunch of click sounds that sound like creaking doors sometimes, like if you slowly open a creaking door. And some of those are used for social communication, these buzzing sounds. And a lot of that is used for echolocation. So that's not for communication, but for like bat sonar, so that they can learn information about the world by bouncing sound waves off of things. And have you gotten a sense of what they are communicating Are there mundane things that seem to be more like a, hey, what's up? Or, (laughs) you know, what are they saying? Yeah, a lot lot of it would be your sort of standard animal communication stuff. So uh, they'd be uh, communicating when they're excited or when they're upset. There are certain sounds that come out. But what makes dolphins quite interesting, and we know from studying them in the lab, is that they can learn uh, labels for things. Like you can teach them artificial symbol systems and teach them the words connect to certain activities or ideas. And so the, you know, the goal has always been like, well, do they have a system of their own that functions like that? And we don't necessarily know or think that that's the case, that it's exactly the same to human language. But they do have something cool called the signature whistle, which is a, a unique whistle that each dolphin will make. This is not all species, some species. Uh, and that whistle they repeat over and over, and it functions almost like a name. So, like, that dolphin will only make that whistle, uh, and sometimes it might make the whistle of its friend who's, you know, is trying to get the attention of its friend, so it will call out its friend's signature whistle. When we're picking up on different ways animals communicate, we tend to interpret them in our human ways, like, oh, the dolphin is calling his buddy, he's saying hi. But I asked Justin if it's possible for us to grasp animal communication without putting our lens on it. First of all, humans and animals, we're all dealing with the same basic communication system. So like if you pet your cat, you know, a soft, gentle touch it's kind of universal, like softly touching something is generally understood to be a sign of affection or goodwill across all species. That's pretty standard stuff. But what humans get excited about with animals is when we think they're trying to communicate information uh, to us, like to get us to understand something. 
And that is the big difference. So humans have a thing called theory of mind. I can guess what it is you're thinking right now, and then I can tailor make the things that I say to try and get you to, uh, you know, go get me a coffee, for example, or just to understand some concept. When we communicate, all we're concerned with is what the other person is thinking most of the time. But animals don't really care all that much. They, they don't have theory of mind to the same extent. They're not interested in my thoughts and my beliefs. So when they're communicating, they're just sort of basically communicating out to the world and to you their internal thoughts and their feelings and their emotions. And they're not interested in what you think. And I think that's a basic rule when you're dealing with an animal is to remember that they don't care what you think. They don't know what you think. They're not interested. And if you understand that, uh, it becomes easier to understand how they communicate. But at the same time, it seems like sometimes we desperately want them to care what we think. And a lot of people think, you know, their cat or their dog is concerned with what they're thinking. <laughs> it's true. I mean, that's the human default. And of course, animals do have thoughts and feelings, and we correctly attribute that to them. Um, but we often over-attribute the things to them. So yeah, it's it's normal and completely fine, and it helps us to treat animals better. So that's good. Um, but when you're trying to decipher why your cat's doing this or why your cat's doing that, it's useful to know that it might not be, it's not might not be that concerned with your thinking. It's more concerned with your outward behavior, whether or not you're going to feed it, whether or not you're touching it and petting it, uh, as opposed to your beliefs. Cats don't care about what you believe. They just want you to be nice to them. So if I'm having a bad day and I'm feeling upset and my dog comes over and seems to be comforting me, that's probably me anthropomorphizing the dog? <laughs> not not necessarily, because there's a lot of great research, specifically when it comes to that idea of empathy, to, to make us say, oh, it's possible animals do actually have an understanding that you might be feeling bad, possibly, uh, and want to comfort you. So there's a, it's not that they're completely unaware of what you're thinking and believing. It, it probably doesn't, uh, it probably extends to things like empathy. They might know and understand your mood, um, but they don't uh, have the deepness of that understanding of your belief system. Uh, you know, all the things, they aren't guessing what it is that you know or what you believe. Maybe what you feel, maybe. So when we are trying to study animal communication, what are some of the mistakes that we might make going into it? I think the primary one is to, for within their own species, like dolphins communicating with dolphins, is we assume that those communication systems must function just like human language, like every whistle that we see is a word that refers to like seaweed or, you know, the current or something. And so that was always the base assumption like 60 years ago. And we sort of gotten rid of that. We realized like, well, you know, animals don't really need to do that. So let's just stop looking for it so much. Why not? What do they do instead? Uh, well, I mean, I always think of it like this. Like, let's say um, y you and I didn't speak the same language and we were stranded on an island. Could the two of us build a shelter together and like hunt and find food and water, even though we didn't use any language at all? Absolutely. We can do a huge number of really complicated things and socialize and have a whole relationship even though we don't speak the same language. And that's what animals are doing. They can coordinate really complicated behavior and make really complicated decisions. And they don't need human language or anything even similar to language uh, to do it. So I think animal communication is exceedingly powerful. Uh, and it doesn't have to be the same as human language. They don't have to write poetry to get stuff done. So... 
In closing, when we take animal communication for what it is, what is the stunning beauty of it all? If we can just look at it and learn more about it. What's great about animal communication is that it gives you a window into what's important in that species world, what matters to that animal. So when you see, you know, two squid and they're, they're, you know, they've got these beautiful um, ability to change the surface of their skin with all these beautiful patterns and it looks amazing, but it tells you uh, once you can decipher why they're using it and when, what matters to a squid? What is a squid thinking about? Why, you know, they're thinking about food and mating and they're thinking about you know, the hierarchy and the social structure. That's, it's great. So communication is the best way to get at the inside of an animal's mind. There's really no other way. So it doesn't have to be human-like to be interesting. It can be just horse-like or squid-like and that's cool too. Justin Gregg is a researcher with the Dolphin Communication Project in Port St. Lucie, Florida. His latest book is called If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal, What Animal Intelligence Reveals About Human Stupidity. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, using machine learning to analyze pig noises to get a better handle on how they're feeling. We can make an image of the sound, which is the frequency versus duration, so it makes a different actual picture. That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. 96% of users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing. Save time with one click and go from editing drafts in hours to seconds. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions to help your team make their point and move faster. Make a bigger impact at work. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. 
On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about communicating with animals. Elodie Briefair works with researchers across several countries to try to answer a simple question. When pigs oink, grunt, or snort, does it mean they are feeling good or bad? Elodie is an associate professor of biology at the University of Copenhagen, and she studies animal cognition. We cannot access this, um, what we call the conscious component of emotions. We cannot ask them how they feel. But Elodie and her team can listen to pigs and try to grasp what they're expressing. Tell me a little bit about the different sounds that pigs make. You know, I'm thinking about snorting and squealing, but there's probably more to that. There have been several studies on there uh, trying to map their vocal repertoire, as we call it, so the number of call types they produce. So it, depending on the studies, it ranges up to like 90 different call types, I think. But the, the main, most recent thorough examination of their calls have mapped five call types. But it's mainly grunts, which are like the low frequency ones, and then you have something in between, and then you have the high frequency, which are the screams and the squeals. Elodie and her team of researchers set up their recording gear at different farms and recorded the noises that pigs made in different situations. When pigs were isolated, or when they were getting a reward. Elodie then uploaded these recordings into a system that uses machine learning to both visualize the calls in waveforms and to analyze them. We can make an image of the sound, which is the frequency versus duration, so it makes a different actual picture. They also told the computer whether these calls were made when a good or a bad thing was happening to the pig. Then they asked the computer to use that data to learn how to tell a good call from a bad call. When you record and evaluate these calls, do you discover new nuance that is not, you know, picked up by the human ear? I mean, I'm sort of thinking if I'm hearing pigs make squeals and screeches, I might intuitively assume that they are in distress. But is there more nuance that you're picking up? So it's very easy for human ear to differentiate between a high-pitched sound, which usually indicates a negative emotion, and the, the low-frequency ones. But the low-frequency ones, for example, the grunts, they can indicate both negative or a positive situation, depends. And the negative grunts are usually much longer than the, the positive grunts. So that's the same call type, but there is a very slight change in duration and, and some other frequencies according to the emotion. Elodie and her team chose pigs for this research in part because they are so common. Farmers around the world raise hundreds of millions of pigs for agriculture. Is there anything that you can do with this research beyond just understanding more about how pigs communicate? 
Yeah, I mean, that was the main aim of this European project that was basically to eventually build an app, which we still hope to do now. So using this knowledge, now we know that it's feasible right, to use machine learning to classify the calls. The next step would be to implement it in a tool that would then record groups of pigs on the farm that would classify the calls according to whether they are positive or negative and give some information to the farmer, maybe on a daily basis of how many the percentage of positive and negative calls produced. So if there's an increase in negative calls, then the farmer can see what's going on, if there's something wrong. Eventually, it could be an additional tool for farmers to monitor the well-being of their livestock, but it could go beyond that. It could help inspectors monitor what's happening on different farms. To know what's the welfare level in the farm and some kind of monitoring, because nowadays... People working on animal welfare agree that the, the major part of the, the welfare of the animal is actually the emotion they experience. So it's not only their physical health, how physically healthy or sick they are, but also and mainly their emotions. But we don't have any existing on-farm system that monitors emotion. We have system monitoring, for example, how lame, if a, a cow gets lame or not, how much they eat, but, but we don't have any on-farm monitoring of emotions. Elodie Briefer is an associate professor of biology at the University of Copenhagen. She says that if scientists can combine what they are learning about animal facial expressions with the sounds they make, that will give them a much better picture of what's really going on inside the minds of pigs or other animals. I love my dog as much as I love you. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. 
We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR.